0: You are listening to a Himal South Asian podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Himal podcast. This is Shubanga Pandey and in today's episode we'll be talking about how global financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have been responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We'll also be looking at how their relationship with developing countries like those in South Asia is likely to evolve in the coming days. To discuss these topics, I'll be talking to Prof. C.P. Chandrasekhar, who is an economist based in New Delhi's Jawaharlal Nehru University. Prof. Chandrasekhar, welcome to the Himal podcast.
0: Hello, good to be here.
1: So I want to begin by asking you about these two key international financial institutions uh, the IMF and the World Bank. Can you briefly introduce them and also tell us how they've been responding to the ongoing crisis including any kind of policy tools or instruments that they've been using?
0: Well um, these two institutions, uh, the two principal institutions are speaking of the fund and the bank were set up as part of the Bretton Woods Agreement and um, the idea was that uh, the bank would be involved in development financing across the world, in some sense, uh, and attempt to try and uh, put on the development path countries which uh, over long years, some largely because of the effect of colonialism, had not been able to progress in substantial measure. And the idea was that the surpluses which would accrue to the richer nations would, in part, be recycled for development purposes through the, the World Bank. and uh, the international Monetary Fund, which is what is becoming particularly crucial now, was going to be an agency which in some sense uh, was going to manage the international payments and at that point of time uh, we had uh, as a result of a uh, fixed exchange rate system and uh, the idea was that uh, when countries are in need for balance of payments financing within that kind of an inflexible exchange rate system, uh, the, the International Monetary Fund would step in and not merely provide short term balance of payments financing or emergency finance, but also impose a set of conditions which will ensure that these these countries ostensibly would get back onto their feet and be in a position to be able to manage their balance of payments themselves. Now, over a period of time, of course, uh, both these institutions and in particular, the International Monetary Fund began to lose as much, much of the relevance it had essentially because of the fact that starting in particular since the late 1970s and then, of course, in the 80s and 90s onwards, uh, private flows of international capital, private cross-border flows of international capital, which earlier did not move in significant measure to developing countries, began to flow to developing countries, especially to what they call the emerging markets, the more developed among the developing countries. And this essentially meant that, Besides this, uh, the the old ways of the re- recycling of global surpluses, which was through bilateral aid, which is between between governments and countries, and multilateral aid, in at the centre of which were the World Bank and the IMF, that now you had another way of recycling, completely outside the control system, but controlled, of course, now by the large international financial firms, and this had begun to, in some sense, uh, and undermine or erode, let us say, the, the relevance of uh, or the strength of, in, of, of or the power of institutions like the International Monetary Fund. What COVID-19, this crisis has really done is actually provided once again, and this has happened on occasions in the past, provided the fund with an opportunity to restore itself at the center of the international redistribution of, of um, forex surpluses. And this is because of the fact that one of the consequences of the crisis, the sudden stop which has occurred across the world, but affected in particular quite seriously uh, the developing countries, uh, is that uh, foreign capital, private foreign capital, which had accumulated in these countries over a long period of time because of its decision to to actually target some of these countries as destinations for profitable investment, Has now begun to to withdraw. So, if you look at the uh, if you look at the internet, the data put out by the Institute for International Finance, for example, in the 70 days starting from January 21st, which was in some sense the period when the COVID crisis began to go global, it's argued that uh, in the period since then, something like uh, 93 billion dollars has has moved out of developing countries, in particular, the richer of these developing countries, the so-called emerging markets. So this is this is not merely put these countries in a crisis in terms of the fact that their exports are affected, commodity prices are collapsing. So their export revenues are getting hit and so on. But more importantly, they are in a position where capital, which had come into these countries in the past is now fleeing these countries. And therefore, their requirement for, for foreign exchange, for hard currency, uh, has increased hugely, not really because of the crisis per se, but because the crisis is accompanied by a squeeze on access to, to uh, international liquidity. So in some sense, therefore, the position of the International Monetary Fund has become quite crucial. And uh, uh, as you might have read, they've uh, started a number of uh, you know rapid financing facilities, in particular for the poorest of, of the developing countries. But the other thing which happened was a demand which came uh, from a number of developing countries, uh, not merely developing countries, but particularly developing countries, which said that the IMF now should use a right which it has by virtue of its, uh, its uh, the, the, the principles which govern its constitution to issue international liquidity in the form of the special drawing rights. Now, what are these special drawing rights? Special drawing rights are basically Uh, free reserves which are created by the the International Monetary Fund, or which means by the members of the International Monetary Fund as as, as an organization, that uh, they decide to issue in terms of this unit of account, which is the the SDR. And the SDR's value is linked to uh, a uh, a basket of five currencies, the dollar, the euro, the the yuan, the pound and the yen, and uh, basically you can issue issue a certain amount at each point of time uh, when you choose to and when you issue it, the amount of additional SDR reserves which are put into the international economy, which allow people to convert these SDRs into say into dollars or into euro or into yen at the going exchange rate, that this is allocated among members depending upon their relative shares in the IMF quota. So, uh, it has happened in the past that uh, there have been a number of times that the SDRs were instituted in in the early 70s, uh, with around a little more than 9 billion SDRs being uh, put out as reserves and allocated among countries. Uh, Then there was, in the end of the 1970s, another allocation of about 12 billion. But most importantly, when the 2008 crisis took place in 2009, An additional 161 billion SDR were put out as free reserves for countries to manage the effects of the crisis, which, as you know, originated the epicenter of which was the United States and subsequently Europe. So countries are basically saying that, listen, if you give us access to these reserves, these free reserves, which are unconditional, then we will be in a position to be able to address the problem which is resulting from the fact that not only is our ability to be able to earn foreign exchange getting undermined, but this is happening at a point of time when there is a flight of capital from our countries, resulting in a situation where the speed of the COVID crisis per se is being hugely intensified as a result of a lack of uh, access to adequate international liquidity, which allows you to convert that currency into any asset. It's fully fungible. You want to import machines, you can import machines. You want to import food, you can import food. So that's what they wanted. They wanted, well, they wanted at least uh, uh, a a trillion, if a trillion is not possible, the discussion had come down to about 500 uh, billion U.S., equivalent to 500 billion U.S. dollars, which is some 300 uh, billion plus SDRs. But that, of course, has been shot down.
1: But uh, despite what appears to be an overwhelming amount of support for the expansion of these special drawing rights, the U.S. has uh, opposed these uh, measures. Um, what do you make of this, and uh, do you think there are geopolitical or ideological reasons behind it?
0: You know, it, 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 at at all points of time, um, and, you know, it, it, while it is true that both in terms of of uh, voting power within the IMF and in terms of uh, the the agreement between the uh, the United States and Europe, where Europe gets the leadership of the IMF and uh, the World Bank, leadership of the World Bank goes to the U.S. on a regular basis, that despite that, this is mediated control. And uh, the United States always wanted not merely to exert control through the mediation of the IMF and the World Bank, but also wanted to directly exert its control. And what we've had in particular in recent times, especially since the coming of the Trump administration, is an effort to not, I wouldn't even say undermine multilateralism, but to... redefine and reshape multilateralism in a way which suits the interests of the United States in the United States alone. So what we've been having, particularly after the 2009 crisis, we've had uh, a new tendency, which has emerged for the United States to directly use the fact that it is the home of the reserve currency, the dollar, which, uh, as you know, is as good as gold. You know, you can use it to buy anything you want because a majority of both the real and financial transactions in the world today are denominated in dollars. They've used that and the fact that they've got a mint in their backyard to print dollars to actually try and push liquidity directly from the Federal Reserve into the international system in order to exert direct control. Besides the control which is exerted through the mediation of the IMF, where, of course, uh, more... more, uh, interesting politics comes into play in as much as many countries are there and there's discussion and debate, etc. And the way in which the United States has tried to do this is essentially through its swap mechanism. And the swap mechanism essentially consists in the fact that the United States chooses a set of countries. It tells the country that, listen, up to this limit, you can use your own currency to convert it into dollars at today's exchange rate. With the promise that at some specified date in the future, you will buy back your currency with dollars at the same exchange rate. So there is no loss which uh, the United States would suffer in case the currency of that country depreciates. You know, let us say the Indian rupee depreciates, for example. And of course, the country concerned, depending on the period for which the swap is used, it would pay an interest depending upon whichever market interest rate is taken as the uh, as the sort of uh, benchmark to negotiate that arrangement, so this is a way in which the United States is now trying to move in and provide liquidity directly, which gives it considerable power and strength. So basically, you, do, you, you don't want you don't want too much of free, unconditional liquidity floating out in the, around the system, and if you have this huge increase in the volume of uh, reserves in the SDR reserves which these countries demanding being accepted, then, of course, uh, it undermines the United States direct power and an administration is trying to redefine multilateralism uh, in, in a form in which it suits the interests of the United States and particularly the United States alone. That this, of course, becomes, uh, you know, quite significant because of the fact that it doesn't have to negotiate and play with the, with the Europe, but more importantly, with the China, which, of course, is also
1: a member of the island. Well, um, interestingly, India has also opposed this move. Why do you think that's the case? From the statement
0: which was made by the finance minister to the IMF meet, to the extent that it has been reported and one has read it, it's unclear what exactly is the, is the, is the full argument. There is uh, some talk that you know putting out uh, free reserves of this kind, I mean unconditional reserves of this kind, would lead to misuse etc. Uh, But what is this misuse and why there is this suspicion that there would be misuse, et cetera, is unclear. Uh, Speculation has it because of the fact that uh, the official statement itself is is opaque and uh, ambiguous. Uh, But uh, speculation has it that two factors have played a role. One, of course, is uh, uh, the government of India's effort in recent times to clearly pivot towards the United States to present itself as an ally of the United States, uh, uh, more importantly in the context of uh, its uh, disagreements, tensions, whatever it is with China. And the other element of the speculation is that it it doesn't want uh, its uh, other neighbor whom, with whom it has a strained relationship, which is Pakistan to get access to this, uh, to a part of these reserves because it would also receive an allocation. And as you know, many South Asian countries are particularly strained uh, at the current moment in terms of access to international liquidity. India is, uh, on the surface, not because it has significant reserves uh, of its own, even though a lot of those reserves are borrowed reserves and they're not being earned as a result of a current account surplus on its balance of payments. But it's really because of capital inflows. But anyway, the other is that uh, you don't want... uh, I mean, this is speculation that they you know, possibly the government doesn't want uh, Pakistan to be provided access to this and it might misuse it or whatever it may be. But as I said, this is speculation. This has yeah. not come out clearly in the statement of the government.
1: Well, yes. Um, I think some analysts have made similar speculation about the US opposition, um, because the US wouldn't want Iran or Venezuela or China to have access to those funds. But uh, beyond this specific policy, um, what do you think uh, institutions like the IMF or World Bank should do to uh, assist, you know, developing countries that will likely be the most badly hit uh, by this ongoing crisis?
0: You know, uh, it, we must separate out. You know, we must separate out uh, the sort of smallest and uh, the poorer of the developing countries, and let's say the developing countries which are which are bigger, which are richer, and those developing countries which are part of the G20 and so on. Now, I think for the smaller of the countries, uh, the IMF deciding to launch a set of, well, a set of modified or new programs specifically to confront the difficulties which arise as a result of the current COVID crisis, provides them access to liquidity. The only problem is it's unclear whether access to this liquidity is going to come in a fashion which is untied, and that would matter because dealing with this crisis requires giving up on all uh, conventional notions of what macroeconomic policy should be. And this is is happening in developed countries. Not only are there stimulus packages, in the case of the United States, uh, two trillion plus is the first uh, stimulus package announced uh, by, by the Trump administration. Uh, and this is, uh, of course, you can say that a significant chunk of it goes to big, corporate, big corporates and so on. But there are, there, are, there are efforts to actually try and make a difference in terms of uh, of unemployment allowance, direct da- transfers and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so you need to spend. You need to spend without thinking about borrowing or your budget deficit or whatever it may be. And two, of course, monetary policy must be relaxed. I mean, the Federal Reserve has virtually said that, listen, bring me any piece of paper. In fact, to a certain extent, even the Europe, ECB, the European Central Bank, has said this, bring me any piece of paper, whether good, bad, indifferent, I would still take it over and fund you at near zero interest rates. So if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're going to have that kind of extremely non non-conservative fiscal and monetary policy being the requirement of the day, as illustrated by the actions of the developed countries themselves, then you cannot impose the old kind of IMF conditionality when you fund even the poorer countries. You need to think about a certain degree of debt forgiveness and you need to think about allowing them the flexibility to use this money any which way and to back it up with a set of policies which earlier, given its own conservative frame, the IMF might not have approved of or the World Bank might not have approved of. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen, but Unless as that happens, this, this effort of creating new new uh, windows, new mechanisms and so on is not going to be particularly successful. As far as the more developed of the developing countries are concerned, um, you know, from countries in Southeast Asia and even countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and, of course, going on to even bigger countries like Argentina and so on. Uh, I don't think we are going to be in a world in which uh, the fund is going to part with its money without trying to influence policy, so that even if in the short run it allows a certain degree of flexibility, this is not a short-run crisis. You're going to have to have long-term spending, long-term infusion of liquidity into the system. And if the funds entry in as a provider of support to these countries, is actually going to impose a set of policies which doesn't permit that long that long run intervention, then it might not be something which is positive from the point of view of trying to pull the, the world out of this crisis, assuming of course that at some point of time we get whatever herd immunity vaccine whatever it may be, but even after that it's going to
1: take some time well, given this kind of uh, international policy environment that you kind of paint for us um, now the emerging economies, at least some of them, have also kind of come together to, you know, form other development banks and non-brettonwood institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or the New Development Bank. Um, have there been any kind of measures that these institutions have tried to come up with? What's what's been their response to the to the COVID crisis? Well, uh,
0: uh, I must confess that there's nothing sort of uh, substantially. Uh, significant which has come out in terms of, uh, you know, special initiatives uh, addressed towards the COVID crisis. But we must realize that uh, some of these institutions, like the New Development Bank, the AIIB, etc., have got a substantial degree of independence from um, G7 countries. Uh, It also has the support backing push from a country like China, which is uh, of course, it's also affected significantly by the COVID crisis, but on the other hand, has access to a large volume of dollar reserves, which it can it, which it can outlay. So I would see uh, that using the different windows they have, uh, then becoming significant players in a, in a, in a world in which uh, the thirst for resources, uh, not merely in the form of international liquidity, but resources to undertake the expenditures to bring economies back into shape is going to be very high. And I would suspect that, um, you know, I mean, these, these organizations would play an extremely important role. More so because uh, there, is a, uh, there, is, there are signs that uh, the United States and even some of the countries in Europe, etc., are beginning to focused more and more on themselves. Then on the requirements of uh, what would be a fair and reasonable multilateral order and a recovery which is more generalized and not focused on their own economies.
1: Right, um, that was the question I was coming to that um, given the rise of right-wing nationalist governments in several developing countries um, who we'll also talk about a kind of disengagement from you know various multilateral platforms how do you think that will impact uh, the global governance of international finance? You know, the, the the
0: governance of the financial world, of course, rests on the basis of these strong nexus which exists between, uh, well, the Wall Street firms and the Treasury, and the strong nexus exists between uh, in uh, England and Europe, the City of London, Frankfurt, etc., and uh, and um, sections of the government there. Uh, so, the way I look at it is, you know, that's that's a, that's an area in which uh, finance capital itself has won for itself the right to determine how it's governed. Despite the 2008 crisis, we really have not seen any fundamental reshaping of the regulatory order other than for some tinkering of the Basel norms and, uh, you know, Basel conditions. And... Um, the one segment of the of the world which was affected by the crisis which is which is which has come back to life or had come back to life uh, very strongly well before the covid crisis was of course finance so the way i look at it is um, that governance of the financial system would be determined by international financial capital and uh, the difficulty it might face is because of the fact that uh, the, the rise of these right-wing governments is partly based on its appeal to those who got left behind during the, during the years of financial globalization. And they want uh, a, a greater degree of focus on national economies and, and you know, domestic problems and issues. So there would be a, a sort of a tenuous short-term compromise, maybe. But in the long run, the governance of global finance will be in the hands unless something fundamental happens will be in the hands of the few global firms which dominate the financial world.
1: So is is the current crisis also an opportunity for uh, countries in the global south to rethink their economic policies, um, you know, and economic orthodoxies and to also revisit their uh, relationship with international finance? Um, you know, think tanks or academia that, that usually dominate conversations around uh, economic policy making?
0: Well, let me say, first of all, I would say that's, a, that, that's, that's, that's what circumstances demand. Okay, that uh, it's clear that, you know, I mean, Covid might, might, might look like an exogenous shock, you know, of a virus which has come and sort of upset the world but it's also got to do with the, with the long run failure of the system to develop the resilience to be able to not say that there'll never be another virus but that at least to be able to address it when a virus of this kind strikes in a way which doesn't lead to this you know colossal crisis that we are beginning to experience uh, but the and, and, and I'm, I'm sure that there would also be a of a, pu- a, a sort of a push of countries to focus more on national policies and national economies and domestic markets, because of the fact that the rest of the world is shutting itself out. You know? uh, but the point is, is that going to actually lead to a rethink of policies, which might uh, actually involve not merely a rethink of the way we treat, you know, we we engage with the United States or the and the World Bank or with international finance, uh, but also how we engage with the uh, with uh, vested interests domestically, with, uh, with uh, the dominant uh, corporates and um, economic interests and business interests and financial interests, who would need to be, in some sense, regulated and tamed in order for you to launch a strategy which challenges the sort of conservative uh, orthodoxy which has ruled uh, since the uh, 1970s in terms of ideas and in terms of policy. So, whether this opportunity or this this circumstance would actually be converted into a change uh, depends upon whether there would be a reshaping of the relative power of the forces which determine the way in which uh, policy moves. And uh, there's no reason just now to be particularly optimistic about that.
1: Well, on that note, uh, we'll bring our conversation to an end. Thank you, Professor C.P. Chandrasekhar, for your views on this important topic. Okay, thanks. For more Himal
0: podcasts, go to himalmag.com podcasts.